Uh, without further ado, let's continue in the awesome book of Joshua. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 1. As we continue in a series about stepping into God's promises. Joshua is a book about stepping into the promises of God. And we started last week, and we have been and will for three weeks continue to park ourselves in this first chapter that you see in the book of Joshua. It's verses 1 through 9. Verses 1 through 9, that little segment that opens up Joshua, functions not only as an introduction to the book, but actually as a summary. Like if you read the nine verses, you get a a pretty good idea of what the whole book is about. And so we want to take our time. We want to take three weeks to kind of understand uh, this first chunk of Joshua. And in doing so, in our second week, we're going we're gonna to focus in on verse 7 and 8. And so I'm going to read that as you're turning there. Uh, if you missed <clears throat> last week or you were there last week and uh, you're wanting more, I just want to offer another uh, summary of what happened last week and a clarification for you uh, that God's plan and purpose with Israel was to be blessed in order to be a blessing. The carrying out of that plan and purpose involves actual land. And so that's why you see that being a huge theme throughout the book of Joshua. So much about land. And the full scope of God's plan and purpose would eventually include the entire earth and every people group in it. And so this is a huge, expanding revelation of God's mystery for the whole earth, starting with Israel, moving to the whole earth. So I want to be careful to say, Israel has not been replaced in our day. Far from it. We should say that Israel and their mission have been expanded to include Gentiles, as was prophesied in the Old Testament. So I want to be very clear on that. There is no replacement. There is an expansion. And so with that, there provides us a bit of attention, right? We must not read Joshua in 2016 as this carte blanche for uh, a modern-day nation to do anything that it wants to its surrounding nations, okay? Uh, nations like Lebanon and Syria and Jordan. We must have a biblical perspective of all nations. God loves all people, all people groups, and all nations. We also must not forget God's covenant love towards Israel. We must remember that there is a future repentance, a restoration, and an unfolding purpose yet for Israel that involves the land. So hold those things in tension. This is a huge, huge plan enacted by God. Joshua, I believe, gives us a glimpse into that, not just to understand what happened thousands of years ago, but what that means for Santa Barbarans and Texans and everyone in between. So without, uh, without any delay, let me read verses 7 through 8, and we will spend the next few minutes talking about what Joshua is writing. The word of the Lord says this, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. This is the word of the Lord. God, we uh, now ask you this morning that as we read your word, we would not be stuck with a mere cognitive understanding of your word, but even as Joshua has written, that we would meditate on it, that it would move from our minds into our hearts, from our hearts to our bodies, from our bodies to our social circles, from our social, uh, social circles to the entire world. We ask that your word, as you promised once before, would not return void, but that it would accomplish what you have set it out to do. And please let it accomplish much in our lives today. We believe. We ask that you would help us in any area of unbelief or doubt, any struggle. We pray that you, our good shepherd, would lead us through those areas with your hand on ours, 
showing us the great things that you have planned for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. We should probably start, and there's a list of promises and commands in this passage, we should probably start with the end goal. Where God says that we will land once we do a number of things that he tells us to do in verses 7 through 8, and that is that we will have our way made prosperous and we will have good success. He says that over and over. Those two words which are basically synonymous, prosper and good success. What does it mean to prosper in the Christian life? What did it mean to prosper in the Old Testament? If you were to look at all the examples of prosperity in the Old Testament, it was always connected to the blessing of God. And prosperity had a lot of different nuances and meanings, but at its very base, it just spoke of God's favor upon you. To be prosperous meant that God's favor was on you in a tangible way, and there were many ways that that tangible favor played and fleshed out, but it was ultimately about God's favor upon you. He he delighted in you. He was for you. He was behind you. He was around you. He was in support of you for his glory. And so there's this basic sense of prosperity in the Old Testament of God's favor, out of that favor came all these other things. I'm thinking of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 4. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Those ideas are very closely intric- uh, 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 tied together. Now, out of God's favor, you see in the Bible things like having plenty. You see uh, storehouses being full, uh, to use their vernacular as farmers. Uh, You see a lot of wealth. I think of Abraham, who is one of the richest people in the land. You see uh, health in a variety of ways. You see physical health. Uh, You see emotional health. You see relational health. You see deliverance or salvation, being delivered from bondage. These are all uh, nuances of prosperity in uh, God's economy. You also see sufficiency, that there is no lack. Um, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, right? Uh, You also see peace, peace from enemies, uh, peace in the land, peace of mind, uh, all sorts of wholeness. So these are some of the words that come up, the concepts that come up in the Bible. Again, all spilling out of the sense of God's favor. Um, If you're reading this, you might be like, well, uh, so how does that work out for me since I am sick, poor, have nothing, and am freaking out? Like, does that mean God hates me right now? For that, I think we have things like the book of Job, right, and many other books that are there to balance this idea that a measurement of God's acceptance of us is the material stuff that he has. He certainly blesses and pours out blessing, and sometimes they take on various forms, but it is not a sign of his love for you if you do not have as much money as you would like, right? We certainly see outpourings of physical and material blessing, but we also see books of the Bible where Job, who's one of the most righteous people in the land, whose own mouth never stumbled so far as to sin against God, and he lost everything. And the whole book is an argument between God and Job and his friends about whether Job was righteous or not. And God says, yeah, you are. You just had a really terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. So we ought not use those material blessings and those material signs of well-being to measure how good we are with God. And yet when they come, we do enjoy them, right? Who doesn't uh, enjoy a little something-something? The problem is skipping over the book of Job and then assuming that faithfulness will always result in material blessing. But sometimes we see signs of all of those things. Often, maybe, we see signs of those, especially in the Old Testament. Now, in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, there's a specific word for prosper that, again, comes out of that sense of God's favor upon his people for a specific task, prospering for a specific task. The word in verse 8, when it says, then you will, when you do all of these things, you will make your way prosperous. The Hebrew word for prosperous right there means literally to rush, okay? Might not make sense right off the bat until you, until you read in context of Joshua what's actually happening. 
what's happening. The people of God are wandering in the wilderness, and God is promising the people of Israel to get out of the wilderness and to occupy a territory because of God's promises. And he's saying, if you do all that I'm telling you to do, you will prosper, or literally, you will rush into the promises that I have for you. That's the original sense of the meaning. Other words for it could be to advance or to make progress. That's the idea here. In context, Israel is about to step out in faith and experience something that's a little stretching to their comfort zone, maybe a little scary, and uh, uh, it's something that God has promised and blessed, and he's saying, hey, if you just do what I'm telling you to do, you will prosper. Literally, you will have great success in my promises. You will rush into the land. How many of you want to rush into the land that God has set out before you? It is intimately tied with some of the things that he's going to tell us today. But for us, we, if, if we were to rephrase this, what is the application here? We might say, the, to prosper in this case means that God's favor is so on his people that they now have the supernatural ability to step into or to rush into, I like that word even better, and experience God's promises for their own personal enjoyment, because God's like that, he's fun but also to move the ball forward in his mission. This is God moving the mission forward and blessing his people. For us, you know, what does that look like? What does it look like to be successful? Um, I'm not talking merely about getting a job promotion, although that's good as well, but in the context of Joshua, we might say something like this, like what, what does it look like to be successful in Christianity, Right? You ever think about that? What does good Christianity look like? I think we have a a lot of ideas of what bad Christianity looks like, but what's good Christianity look like? What What would it look like, strange enough to say this, to be successful or good at following Jesus? What would that look like? What are some of the things that you should see? And a lot of people are asking this right now, all over the nation, all over California, all throughout this church, they're asking questions like, uh, is there more? There's a deep hunger for a, a deeper sense of spirituality, a hunger for something that's real, that's beyond the surface, beyond the veneer, something that is more authentic in its spirituality, something that is more transformational and powerful and more like what we see in Jesus when we look at the things that Jesus said and did. There's a desire for more. I think we're already asking some of those questions. What does it look like to do Christianity well? And I think part of the answer is in verse 7 through 8. God's first answer is, well, you need some direction. Only be strong and very courageous, he says in verse 7. Being careful, here's the direction, to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. This is where we get, this is my first point, direction from God's word. I want to break this sentence down in three words. I just want to highlight three words that will make sense of this entire sentence. The first is the law. Law in the Bible generally refers to the Ten Commandments, right? That covenant on Sinai. And what out of those Ten Commandments would later, through the first five books of the Bible, become 613 commandments explaining those other ten. So a lot of commandments, a lot of do's and don'ts. When we get into the New Testament, those commandments did not just disappear into thin air. Jesus actually says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. And so they are fulfilled in him and by knowing him. And by the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit, we're actually enabled and empowered to live out the essence of what the law requires. And so the law here is the rails that a person who loves and desires God's things is directed and guided and defined by. And this might sound really counterintuitive to you, especially as we're talking about the freedom of walking into God's promises. Law and freedom seem to, they sound contradictory in our minds. Perhaps you're saying law seems to be the opposite of what freedom is. Uh, If we want freedom, we need less laws and less parameters and less boundaries. And 
That's not always true. If you uh, probe more deeply at that thought, think of all sorts of different expressions of art and music, uh, uh, all different expressions like that. There are certain parameters. In music, there is a major scale, and there's a time frame. In art, there's a color wheel. And in photography, there are certain formulas for getting a good exposure. Those are parameters. Those are laws. And to the person that doesn't understand the art form or the medium, it could seem completely counterintuitive. But to people who do understand it, masterpieces can be born out of staying within those parameters. It's the same with God's law. The word defines and directs the person who loves God. Now, it's also completely perfect and holy. And if you've ever tried to do what the Bible says, you know that it's uh, it's, it can be difficult, and we fail at it. And we'll talk about that failure later uh, when we talk about Jesus, but <clears throat> that's the law. In the New Testament, you can think of the law as any type of command or imperative, anything that directly or indirectly tells you what to do or what not to do. That's the law all throughout the Bible. And you might say, well, that's cool. I see a lot of things in the Bible that are awesome, and you know what? I follow them. But then, notice that Joshua says, be careful to do according to all the law. He knows exactly what you're thinking. He knows that we love to pick and choose. I love to pick and choose based on whatever hobby horse that I'm currently riding uh, in a season of my life. Uh, For you, it might be, I'm all about the community passages of the Bible in, uh, in Scripture, just not so much about mission or evangelism. Uh, or you might be like, I, I love the passages about love, uh, not so much about holiness. Or you might be like, I love the, the, the passages about God's love, just not so much about his wrath. I love the do's, I don't love the don'ts. I love the stuff about a God, a Christ's promised return. I just, I, I underemphasize his current present ministry and my current present responsibility. You might be like, I love the stories about Jesus. That Paul guy, eh, kind of a jerk. I love the New Testament, not a fan of the Old Testament. I love, uh, uh, and the list goes on and on, I love doing life together, not so much evangelism. In other words, we can do that for days, right? We all have a lens by which we view the Bible. And that lens is filled with our own biases and our own preferences and a whole array of constructed ideas that we have accrued throughout our lives, our experiences, our hurts, our pains, our family of origins, uh, that form a grid by which we filter information, including the Bible. We read the Bible the way we want to read the Bible. Um, For example, when Brianna my wife tells me to clean the bathroom, I somehow magically hear, put it off until tomorrow. I don't know why, but that's what I hear. I am growing in my hearing of what she's actually saying, which is clean the bathroom, but it's very strange. And if you have a significant other, you understand how strange it is that two people can hear the same thing and do completely opposite of what each other intended. Because of this lens, you know, in the same way, we we might tend to favor verses in the Bible that support our preferences and internal desires. Um, But God's word isn't subject to our lens. It's not subject to our personal realities, or at least the ones that we put together. The Bible conforms our reality to God's kingdom. And we must constantly be asking God to show us where our lives are not aligned with his kingdom and for the word to open our eyes to that. Instead of our ideas shaping the Bible and picking parts of the Bible to support our ideas, we should be hoping that the Spirit would allow the Bible to shape our ideas. The third thing that Joshua says is do it. Don't just read about it. Don't just talk about it do it. There's no bifurcation in Scripture between hearing and doing. And so what we have here is Joshua simply saying, every, all the full counsel of God that can be categorized as a single unifying story and everything that, that it fleshes out in between, I want you to soak it up and I want it to conform you from the inside out 
so that your life is daily moved by everything that the Bible says. Conforming to God's word is what Joshua, the book of Joshua, is telling us is the direction for success. Do you want to prosper in what God has called you to do in this life? Pay attention to the word of God and do everything that it says to you, for you to do, even the stuff that you find disagreeable. <clears throat> now, if you were to think about this, okay, direction, the word of God is tied intricately to success in this life. Spiritual success, kingdom success, I need to pay attention to the word. What would you say the opposite of success is? You may say, well, failure. Failure is the opposite of success. Look what Joshua says in, uh, at the end of verse 7. Do not turn from the word, from the law, to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. In other words, it's, it's not always, and it's not necessarily that failure is the opposite of success, compromise is the opposite of success. When he says don't turn from it to the right hand or to the left, he's essentially describing compromise. To fail at God's word is not necessarily the opposite of success. We have a merciful God that picks us up every time we fall and he keeps charting us in the same direction by the power of his Holy Spirit. Think about, think about it in this way. Let's say you had this deep desire to be healthy. You started exercising daily. You started eating right, eating, uh, paying attention to nutrition. Perhaps you've, you have this motivation, like there's this someone who's so cute, and you're like, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to get washboard abs, and I'm going to look super hot. And so you start eating right. You start just lifting weight. You start doing all of this stuff. And let's say somewhere down the line you fail miserably by eating a whole cheesecake by yourself. And maybe it sets you back just a little bit, right? You have failed. But what, what is likely to happen after that if you're driven by something bigger than the cheesecake? You know, like a, someone really cute. You might be so motivated to get back that you actually work harder at what you were doing than before you ate the cheesecake. So in that sense, you failed but you are still going in the same direction of success. Now, let's say something completely different happens. Let's say that something happens in your life that completely upsets your desire and motivation. Let's say that person turns you down and rejects you and your self-esteem and motivation just uh, plummet and all of a sudden you decide it's not worth it anymore. You just begin, I don't know, Binge, binging on cigarettes and fast food and Capri Suns or whatever. I don't know. Those sound like they go together. Notice that this isn't just a failure or a mistake. You have completely changed directions. You have turned to the right hand or to the left. You have completely charted course. Do you see the danger of compromise? When we fail and when we disobey and when we get things wrong... God still picks us up and we're still moving in the same direction. But when we compromise, we are essentially saying, uh, <clears throat> we are essentially saying, I want to experience the promise of God without being obedient to God. I want to find a different way of doing things. In the same way as the eating and the nutrition and the exercise, when we fail to follow God, our motive can still be mainly to do the right thing. But when you compromise, you're essentially giving up and veering from the intended course. And why do we veer? Why do we get to those places where we're like, you know what, I know that it says this, but I'm going to do something completely different. This isn't a mistake. I am changing directions. Why do we do that? What goes through our minds when we knowingly compromise on something that we know is right? It could be that we aren't sure that it's right. It could be a fear of the outcome if, if, if we do what God tells us to do. It could be an underlying desire for success in our own terms over God's version of success. It could be a sheer lack of trust in God. Like he's saying if I do this, he's going to do that, but I just don't believe that. I don't believe the good things that God has promised. There might be a number of reasons for why we veer, but often it just comes down to a, a mistrust and a lack of esteem for the things that God says. We don't believe him at his word. You know what the great thing about Christianity is? 
it's more than just do everything that this book says. It is, I want to show you to love everything that this book says. Christianity is more than just a to-do list. It is a way of life centered around a person, more even than a book. And in order to even understand the Word of God, to to ascertain spiritual things, we have to be liberated in the first place to, to even understand, much less to obey. We must be liberated to even see that what God says is always good, it's not just a mere dry duty, but it, it is, uh, it is the, the best possible way for humanity to live. And it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that the human heart can be set free from its own sense of independence to say, God, you have a better way than I do. And I don't always understand it, but I trust you. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36 foretold that this day would come. He said, and this was God speaking, he said, you know what? You never do the things that I tell you to do. That's okay. Well, it's not okay, but I have a plan. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Thousands, hundreds of years later, a man would come in on the scene And John would open up his testimony of this man by saying, in the beginning was the Word, the living Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him there was nothing that that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, the darkness has not overcome it. The living Word of God has stepped down into our midst, and he began speaking life. He eventually would die on the cross and rise from the dead and live a a perfect life according to the law. In all of those things so doing to show us that the power of the curse and death does not have to hold us down. We don't have to live that way anymore. And he ascended on high to prove to us that the kingdom life is possible now. But he didn't just leave and ascend to give us a righteous moral example. He says in John chapter 15 verse 26, it's better that I leave because, do you want to give you a spoiler or anything? But yes, I do. <laughs> Holy Spirit's going to come. Bam! He doesn't say it quite like that. He says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he'll bear witness about me. And he'll remind you of all of the things that I've told you. And he'll help you. Just as Ezekiel prophesied hundreds of years earlier. And so the Holy Spirit today is present among us and in us, not only for us to know God's presence, which we're going to talk about next week, but to hear his voice and to live his voice. And God's voice is heard in a variety of ways, but it is heard most clearly and most authoritatively and most determinatively and most transformationally through the things that he has already said through his written word. And perhaps the first step in transformation and healing for you is to see this not as a mere piece of literature. This is not like any other book on your Kindle. This isn't like any other book on your bookshelf. Paul, speaking of the Bible, said that it is God-breathed. It is from the mouth of God himself. Well, yeah, but people wrote it. Yeah, but as Peter says, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, moved by God as the Spirit gave them uh, the ability to speak. It is powerful. It's not just something to be analyzed. It analyzes you. Jeremiah ch- uh, chapter 23, verse 29 uh, says that the Word of God is like a hammer that shatters the rock. It's able to transform. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 says that the word of God is working in believers supernaturally. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active. It is alive with supernatural power. It's not a dead book. It's not words on a page. It's not simply ink. It is alive with power. And because it is alive with power, the author of Hebrews goes on to say, it is actually able to read you more than you're able to read it. And in so doing, it will examine your thoughts and your intentions. It knows you better than you know yourself. 
It is sharper than a double-edged sword. In fact, as Paul would say in Ephesians, it is the sword of the Holy Spirit. First, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 says, it is able to make you wise for salvation, for following Jesus. He had also gone to say it is able to make you complete, a whole person. It is able to give you comfort and difficulty, Psalm 119, verse 92. And all throughout Psalm 119, the psalmist keeps saying over and over and over, it is my delight. How many of us read the Bible as a duty, and yet King David, who I'm certain had a lot of other important things to do too, looked at the law of God, and he didn't even have all that we have, and he delighted in it. Look at some of the things that he says all throughout this single, very long chapter of the Bible, which is all about Scripture. Verse 14, in the way of your, uh, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as on all, in all riches. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. I, uh, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Speaking of evildoers, he said, their heart is unfeeling, like fat. I don't know what that means. But look at what he says right after that. But I delight in your law. <laughs> your, Art is unfailing like fat. You should say that in an argument sometime. See what happens. Verse 77, let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. 143, trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. I want to know what was so delightful about God's word for David. I want to tap into that power. You may be reading this and saying, I don't don't understand that. I've read the same Bible that David had. My heart does not delight. What's wrong? Perhaps the key is locked up in something that Joshua ends by saying. That we're not just directed by God's word. We must not just heed the warning to not compromise with God's word. But those things are wrapped up intimately with meditation on God's word. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. The prosperous Christian life is somehow locked up in meditation on Scripture. Now, when he says, I don't want it to, it shouldn't depart from your mouth, He's speaking about, not necessarily like going about your day just reciting scripture like 24-7, just rote memorization, although that is excellent. He's speaking broadly about the shaping of your words, the way you talk. He's speaking about the habits that you form constantly being formed by scripture. He's speaking about formation of habits. You see, you automatically do what you have been trained to do. So you may look at this, you may say, yeah, I need direction, and I get that direction through God's word. God's word says to me uh, not to let the uh, sun go down on my anger, uh, thereby giving the devil a foothold. Awesome, I'm going to not be angry right now. And you're in the zone, right? So you're doing a great job. But unless it is intricately interwoven into the fabric of your habits, your second nature will be, when people cross you, to get mad. Habits are incredibly important. That's locked in with what Paul often calls the flesh. It's not enough that you just do the right, uh, try to do the right things. We need holy habits. We need to form the way that we behave and live our lives, and we're always forming. And God says, I want you to be always forming by my word. I want the story of my plan to form who you are. And so part of that is speaking it and reading it and digesting it. Think of all the things that you are constantly digesting in your mind. All the television shows that you watch, all the things that you listen to, all the conversations that you're a part of, all the books that you read. You're being formed by those things. God is saying, I want you to be formed by my things. And you shall meditate on it day and night. This, I think, is the key verse in this entire passage. Because we live in somewhat of a a cognitive society that emphasizes our thinking abilities. Look at the way that we're educated. 
the tests and exams that we take. How do you know if you are a, an expert in a chosen field? If you pass an exam. If you choose the right answer when you need to choose the right answer. Have you ever crammed for an exam right before it was due, like the next day? You put it off until the night before and you just begin to cram for this exam, just, just digesting and memorizing all sorts of silly facts. And then the following morning, just in time, you passed. And so from the professor's point of view, you aced it. But then within a week, you've forgotten everything that you learned. You don't actually know the material. You just crammed. <clears throat> there is a, a sense in our culture and in the church today, that all we need to do is memorize and know facts and information. If we just go to enough Bible studies, if we just read the Bible, if we just learn stuff, if we just fill our minds with information, everything else will follow. When the testimony of Scripture is that God is after the whole person. And the mind is one part of you. That's very important, but there's also a heart there's also the emotional side of you. There's also the flesh, the habits. There's also the social circles. God wants to conform the whole person to Christ. Greatest commandment in the Bible is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your uh, strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. You see what he's doing there? The whole person. Maybe this is why there's a disconnect with some of us between what we see in the prophets and apostles when they describe God's word as this delight and this power in our experience. Maybe you open up the Bible, you study it, you might even go to a class, you might even hear a sermon, but your life is dry and empty. You're wondering, where did I miss it? Could it be that you are reading it, maybe even studying it, but not marinating in it? It must be in you, in your heart, not just your mind, in order to change you. When Joshua says meditate, the word he uses is literally a, a barely audible murmur. It's this picture of a, a, a person hovering over the word, just murmuring as he's speaking. It, it's so filling his mind that he can't think of anything else. Meditation gets a, a bad rap among Christians sometimes because we associate it with a bunch of Eastern religions, but they, are, they could not be more different. Don't get hung up on semantics and the, the names that we use. Meditation comes from God. And there is a huge different between, uh, difference between things like Eastern meditation and New Age meditation and Christian meditation. Eastern meditation at its very base is emptying your mind. Christian meditation could not be farther from that. It is filling your mind with God and the things of God. Think of Colossians chapter three. If then Christ has been raised, set your mind on things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Filling your mind, that's meditation. I love how Peter describes the effect of meditation in Second Peter. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, speaking of the Bible, to which you will do well to pay attention to. There's that meditation. We have the word, do well to meditate on it. Listen, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. He's using these word images to describe you sitting with the Bible, not rushing, not analyzing, not picking it apart, but just sitting with it as God's personal word to you and sitting with it until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. He's using imagery to speak about God causing your heart to come alive to the words that he's speaking to you in that moment. Meditation. I couldn't put it more succinctly what Joshua is saying here than through this author, uh, Kenneth Bowe, who says, John, uh, Jonathan, <laughs> Joshua chapter one, verse eight tells us that the path to success as God defines it is the habit of making space in our lives to meet with God in his holy word with a heart intention to apply what he reveals through obedient action. I think this process, right, the habits of the heart and action being conformed to the word as we sit with it couldn't be more beautifully described than by the psalmist. Blessed is the man or woman walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, 
nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on it he meditates day and night. They're like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Right now, God is, is calling on his people to sit with him, to immerse themselves in the things that he has said, the most basic form of which is to open up his word and to listen. <clears throat> I know all of you are strategists and list-making people are like, okay, I get it, I get it, meditation. Just give me like five points. Like, how do you do it? Your walk with Jesus can't really be oversimplified to a list of points. It's going to be different for a lot of people, but for, for all you J's in the room, I'm going to give you your bullet list. This isn't something for you to formulaically be burdened by, but for those of you that just want to try it, here's, here's something that you might be able to do and, and change as your walk with God progresses, you know, and, and moves forward. You could start just by finding a quiet place. It's a good way to start. Somewhere where you won't be distracted. Sit in a comfortable spot. By sit, I mean not lie down, because if you're like me, meditation often leaves, uh, leads to cat naps. Could be the Holy Spirit. You never know. <clears throat> just find a quiet place to sit comfortably with your Bible open. and You can just start with a prayer of invitation. It could be something as simple as Come, Lord Jesus, or here I am, or speak to me, anything like that. Just, and it's more of a prayer for your own heart, to, to prepare your heart to receive from God who is already present with you. And if you want, you could just take a moment of silence to let the noise just kind of dissipate and be with the Lord, knowing that he's there. And you could read, take a, a short passage. It could be three, four verses. It could be five verses. It could be one verse. And just slowly begin to read the verse. Don't analyze it. Don't pick it apart. Read it the way that you would eat a fine meal. Just tasting every word. You ever go to just a fantastic restaurant and you're like, you just want to slow down and just take your time. And you're like, "I I just want to take this. And you're just like smelling it eating it and you're just slowly chewing. You just don't even want to like swallow it. You just want to like taste every morsel. This is what we ought to do with God's word. Slow down. Turn every word around like a diamond, looking at every facet and just taste it. Tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Using all of your senses until maybe a word or a phrase jumps out at you. And when that happens, you ever do that? You're reading a verse or a passage and one word just hops out at you. That might be God speaking to you. He might be saying right in that moment, this is the word that I have for you. And when that happens, just stay there. Don't even read the rest. Just stay at that word. Sit there in silence and receive from what God is saying to you and rest in the words that he is sharing with you. That's maybe a basic way that you can start, but... I want to start this, uh, stop this sermon right now, and if it's cool with you, I'd just like to just do this with you right now. Is this cool? Just all of us. Let's just meditate on scripture together. Um, I'm going to ask the worship team actually to come out so that they don't have to come out as we're meditating. Um, but I want to practice scriptural meditation with you right now so that you can experience it for yourself and do it yourself. Over the years, <clears throat> Christians endeavoring to do what the Bible says, meditate, read, soak in, reflect, and rest in his word, uh, would come up with a, way, a simple way of doing it that the church has been doing for 1,500 years. Um, back then, they spoke weird languages like Latin, and so they called it Lectio Divina. But it, that really just means divine reading. It, was, it came from this, this belief that this is not just a book, but that it is God's personal word to his people. And so they begin to read the word as though it was God's word to them, because it is. 
what we're going to do right now is, is just try that together. Um, I'm actually going to have, I'm going to have Roxanne read a portion of scripture three times. Uh, scripture has nothing to do with the sermon. Uh, it's about God's indwelling presence and his love. She's going to read it. It's not going to be on screen. Just listen to it. Close your eyes if that helps. There will be moments of silence in between each of these readings so that you could sit with what God is saying. And before we do this the first time, I just, as she reads it the first time, I want you to listen silently as though you are hearing this for the first time. As though God were in the room speaking. Not to the church, not to Israel, not to Chris Law, to you. And as you're listening to it, I want you to, to notice, are there any parts or words or phrases that are catching your attention? Any images that, that pop up, that come to mind, and when that happens, take note of it. And we'll sit in silence, and then we'll do this again. Let's just sit in silence right now and prepare our hearts to hear from God. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Whatever the Lord was showing you, just sit with that picture for a few seconds. As, as you hear the passage again, I want you to focus on whatever word or phrase captured your attention the first time. It could be anything. It could be imagine, love. It could be inner being. It could be filled. It could be the. It could be anything. And I want you to begin to hone in on that word as we listen to this again. And open yourself up to anything that God is trying to say to you. What is, he, what is he speaking to you? If you don't hear anything or sense anything, that's okay too, actually. This isn't a, a task in being productive. It's a calling to be present. Let's do that. I pray that out of his glorious riches... He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that, it is, that is at work within us, 
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. third and final reading. This time, I don't want you to do or think anything. Whatever it was that God gave you, even if it was silence, I want you to receive it as a gift. And as we listen to the word of God being read for the final time, I just want you to rest in God's arms and receive what he has for you. After that, we'll end with a short time of further rest and we'll begin to sing. But no rush. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.